As a church, over the past few weeks, we've been in a very short series uh, that we started in September, and we've been calling it Seven Weeks, Seven Antiheroes. And the whole idea behind this series has been looking at some uh, key figures in the Bible that if you've, uh, like me, grown up in a Christian culture or maybe even grew up in a church yourself, I know that wouldn't be all of the people in the room, but if you did, maybe you, like me, ended up with the impression that there were people in the Bible who were true, truly heroic, truly uh, worthy of modeling yourself after. And we've been looking at some of these characters and kind of asking the question, is, is that true? Are, are, are they true heroes in the fullest sense, or are they actually anti-heroes, and you can tell where we land on that by the name of the series, so you can probably figure out how we feel about that. So we've looked at some characters, we think, oh, that, that could fit the heroic mold, but then also some others that are quite clearly not of the heroic mold, but seeing what they all have in common. This morning, uh, we're wrapping that series up. We're looking at uh, Paul, otherwise known as Saint Paul, or the Apostle Paul, man who wrote 13 letters of uh, the Bible. And uh, we uh, are going to be finishing the series by looking at him. So the scripture that we're going to be in this morning is found in First Timothy. I'm going to invite Melvin to come up and read some verses to us, verse 12 to 17. If you've got a uh, phone with the Bible on it, you brought a Bible with you this morning, feel free to look there. Otherwise, the, uh, the words will come up on the screen here behind us. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. God, I, I just want to thank you for your grace, God. I've uh, just been so enjoying this series, so enjoying looking at, at, at these characters in Scripture and just seeing how, your, God, your grace knows no limits, knows no bounds. Uh, God, I know myself as, as a guy who spent so long of my life trying to perform my way in, trying to earn my way in, trying to earn my keep with you. God, thank you for revealing the truth of your grace. Um, thank you for revealing it fully in, in your son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I just, I just pray right now, even as we wrap this series up, as we have baptisms, as we worship, Jesus, be known. Just be known in this room. Be known all across this room. Be known in the lives of, of those in this room who have walked with you for many, many years. Be known in the lives of those who have come into this room this morning searching, asking questions, curious about faith, curious about Jesus. God, I pray that each of us would know more of you this morning and know more of the grace of God as shown through Jesus Christ. Jesus, we pray this for your glory. Amen. Amen. 
Well, I want to do something a little bit different this morning. We will end up talking about Paul, of course, as we're uh, looking at his story as we wrap up this series. But I actually want to tell you about a guy named Charles Colson. Some of you may have heard of uh, Charles or Chuck Colson. He was born in, in Boston in October uh, 1931. His parents uh, were very kind, very charitable uh, people. Uh, Christian ethics really featured in, in Chuck's upbringing. Uh, his parents had a high, high regard for Christian ethics and kind of Christian morals, uh, but they didn't have much of a regard for Jesus himself. So even though they were a very kind, very charitable family, they wouldn't uh, be described as, as a religious family. But from a very early age, uh, Chuck showed a lot of leadership potential. He showed an awful lot of uh, promise. When he was in high school, it was uh, during World War II, he decided that he was going to start a fundraising initiative. He wanted to raise enough money to buy a Jeep, one Jeep, uh, for the U.S. Army, for the war effort. So he rallied people in his high school. They raised this money, and uh, he was able to, to buy uh, this Jeep. They were able to rally together and buy this Jeep for the Army. He already, at, as a teenager, having people kind of gathering around him, following his lead, and, and even giving their money as teenagers. Then in the 40s, there was a, a, a statewide campaign, a campaign to reelect the governor of Massachusetts, and uh, Charles thought that he would get involved in that campaign, so he decided to volunteer, and that's where he started to make a number of uh, political connections. And after that, it was off to university, and after university, uh, his first degree, it was then off to law school, and not just any law school, but he actually ended up at George Washington University, one of the most notable uh, law schools in the United States, where he graduated with honors. Not only did he graduate with honors from his law school, but he also graduated with honors from his undergrad school as well. And then after that, it was a bit more time serving in various political campaigns, but then in his spare time, he decided that he would start his own law firm. And his law firm uh, had offices not only in Boston, his home city, but it also had an office in Washington. And his political sphere of influence uh, began to increase even more, not just around Boston, but now down the east coast of the states to Washington as well. And then in 1969, he was invited to, uh, to join the staff uh, at the White House. He was enjoyed by, invited by uh, President Richard Nixon to become a special counselor to the president. Now remember, this is at a time where there was, there was no shortage of political controversy. It was around a time when the Vietnam War uh, was raging, very controversial, many people not wanting the United States uh, to be in that war. Nixon's popularity was waning. There were violent protests. There were just lots of things going on, and the Nixon administration was trying to figure out the way through this. So the president needed somebody who would stop at nothing to get results, and that man who would stop at nothing to get results for his president was uh, none other than, you guessed it, Chuck Colson. Now, so far up to this point of this story, I suspect that there are quite a few people here in the room this morning that can maybe relate to this in some way because the political journey that Chuck Colson had up until this point, maybe this is something similar to the one that you've moved to Ottawa in pursuit of. We live in the capital city of Canada, and right here as a church, we're only a few blocks from the very you know, seats of power, whether it be Parliament or the Senate or the Supreme Court or other examples in the city, that attracts people to this city. In fact, this morning, I, I, I do suspect that there are quite a few people in the room that have come to Ottawa for that very reason. And we hear a story like of 
Chuck Colson, Charles Colson, and we think, oh, man, this, this kid from Boston, he's, he's done pretty well for himself, hasn't he? He went and he volunteered in the governor's campaign, and he made a few connections, did well at law school, kept meeting all the right people, somehow found his way in to the White House. But as the story uh, continues on, we'll see that it doesn't always play out in kind of the, the fairy tale well that we, uh, fairy tale way that we think that it might. So again, Nixon needed somebody who was going to get things done no matter what the cost. Charles Colson was that guy. He's been described as uh, Nixon's hatchet man. And one very controversial story, something that happened in the United States, uh, sorry, in New York City, there was a protest. It was happening in Manhattan. And uh, the, the administration decided that it did not want this protest to get a whole lot of attention. It, it, they did not want it to grow. So what was actually hatched was a plan from inside the White House by Charles Colson to have a union, a construction union, in New York City come in and quite violently stop this anti-war protest. A number of people, I think 40 people, uh, were injured, including a number of police officers. And that's something that Charles Colson was kind of the, the, the brains behind. And he was actually described by Slate magazine not that long ago as the evil genius behind an evil administration. It was once said of, of Chuck Colson that he'd be willing to throw his own grandmother under a bus if it meant that Richard Nixon would get reelected. I mean, this is not a nice guy, all right? This is not a nice guy. Now, fast forward a little bit from here, and those of you that know your uh, political history in the United States know that Watergate, the Watergate scandal, is, is, is right around the corner. When it was found that uh, from decisions made within the White House, uh, there, there was an approval of illegal spying on American citizens working in, in the Watergate offices. And again, who was behind a lot of that? Who was part of those decisions? None other than Chuck Colson. There was a, uh, an inquiry, a special investigation that was held into this, and Chuck Colson was found to be guilty, and he was sentenced to serve a number of months in prison. Now, around that time, when he was receiving, just around the time he was about to receive his prison sentence, a friend of his, somebody who was quite high up in corporate America, but a man who really loved Jesus and was very good friends with Chuck Colson, gave him a copy of a book. And the book was written by a man named C.S. Lewis. Many of you would be familiar with the, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, but C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a very famous book at that, around that time, or a little bit before, called Mere Christianity. And that ended up in the hands of Charles Colson. Charles Colson read that book, and he was convicted of his sin. And he gave his life to Jesus. He still had to go through with this prison sentence. A lot of people thought, oh, your conversion to Christianity, this is, this is, just, a kinda, this is just a PR stunt. This is just so that people think you've had some sort of great you know, kind of epiphany or inward, inward quest. And you're a changed person and you want us to, you know, to, to, to cut you a bit more slack. He said, no, 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 it is not that. I've genuinely, I have given my life to Jesus. I no longer choose to live for Chuck Colson. I no longer choose to live for President Nixon. I live for Jesus and for Jesus alone. Chuck Colson went into prison, but he went in a very, very different man. And God spoke to him during his time in prison. When he came out of prison, he gave his life to starting something called Prison Fellowship. It operates here in Canada as well. Its biggest base, obviously, would be in the United States, but operates worldwide now in over 120 countries. 
And this is a ministry that goes into prisons and works with incarcerated, incarcerated men and women, telling them about the love of Jesus, giving them a message of hope, giving them a message of peace, not only uh, preaching what we would refer to as the gospel, but also going in in helping with practical needs like clothing, like, like training for when they come out of prison and need to find gainful employment, like reconciliation with family members that their you know, past crimes or, or the ways that they have lived, it's severed ties with family members, and, and, and they've recognized this as a ministry, and they've said, we want to help in that and bring reconciliation even among family members. The way that God has used this has been absolutely incredible, this ministry called Prison Fellowship. Now, Charles Colson's story is quite dramatic. You know, you have this guy, this young guy who grows up, he receives the best education, the best training, goes on as a lawyer, starting his own law firm, ends up in the White House as a special counselor to the President of the United States, but through all of it is so far from God, so far from God, thinks he has it all figured out, but becomes drunk on power, and his heart is rock hard, refusing to show compassion to those around him just getting on with what he feels needs to be done no matter what the cost. This morning, in the wrap-up of this series, as we look at the Apostle Paul, Paul's story has a number of similarities, but on an even far greater scale. We know from his writings that Paul also received the very best of Jewish educations that you could receive. As a young boy, he would have started receiving this education. He sat at the feet of the most notable scholars and even names one in particular. He said, I was trained at this guy's feet. And everybody would have heard it and thought, whoa, wow, you must, you really know your stuff. That teacher, that lawyer, that professor, he taught you. He taught you. You, you, must, you must be among the best. And he rises through the ranks. And he was a master of the law. Paul was a master of the Jewish law. He knew his way in and out of the Jewish law like nobody else. And what do we, tra- what do we call people who are masters of law? We call them lawyers. That, that's their profession. Paul was a lawyer. And it's thought by many, we're not exactly clear through Scripture, but it's thought by many, looking at the life of Paul, that he was a member of something called the Sanhedrin. This would have been uh, the equivalent of, of the Jewish Supreme Court. Would have had a number of people on it, but they would have ruled over matters of the law. We don't know if he was actually a member himself, or if he was, we do know he was very close to other members of the Sanhedrin and would have had their ear. We don't know whether he was a formal member or not, but he was, he was at that rank. He was at that level. So when we read in, in, in Acts chapter 8, we read about the very first Christian martyr. We read about the very first man, a man named Stephen, who loses his life. He's, he's, he's killed. He's stoned. He has stones thrown at him until he is dead. And we also read that Paul was there, and he's looking at it in approval. I want to read Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, it says this, it says, Saul approved of Stephen's education. Saul approved of Stephen's education. Saul, his education, his execution. Um, Yeah, Saul approved of, Saul probably, no, let me, Saul also approved of his own education, so you're all wrong and I'm right. That was a horrible recovery. Um, He approved of his execution. Thank you for the 40 people who corrected me as I said that, trying to whisper subtly. That wasn't subtle at all, but that's fine. Paul approved, Saul, he was called at that time, before his name was changed to Paul. Saul approved of Stephen's execution. 
And it goes on to say this. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered all throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I mean, this is not a nice guy. I think, you know, in reading that description, uh, there's, 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 nothing, there's nothing of it that sits well, of course, but there's something about the dragging off of women to prison that, that for me, I'm sure with many of you, that, that that just shows the depravity of this man, the wickedness of this man. Dragging off, yes, men and women, dragging off women to prison. Paul, Saul, called at that time, was ravaging the church. Why was he doing it? He was doing it for his religious beliefs. He was doing it because he thought he had to protect the religious way of life that he had been trained in, that he knew so much about. For religious, for religious reasons, Saul was ravaging the church. What does that make Saul? Let's put it to modern language. What does that make Saul? That makes Saul a religious extremist. A religious extremist of the type, of the kind, that we read about in the news way too often these days. Way too often. This is what Saul was doing at that time, ravaging the church. So if you're God, what do you do? You know, what do you do in this type of situation? Right? I know what I would do. If I were God, I would have a lightning bolt in my pocket, and it would be coming out, and I would be throwing it squarely at this guy. And by hitting him with a lightning bolt, the, the Saul situation would be, uh, would be solved. I would, though. I don't know what you would do, but I would be like, I'm taking this guy out because he's going after the church. He's going after my early followers. And I don't want that to happen. But what does God do? God isn't like you. And God isn't like me. And where we might think, you know what? He just needs to be taken out. This just needs to be fixed. God doesn't operate that way. God looks at the life of Paul and he says, I'm going to do such an amazing work of grace in this man's life. The people are going to marvel at it. And we come to that. There's this shift. There's this this turning point in Acts chapter 9. And this is where things really shift in Paul's life. Acts chapter 9, verses 3 to 5. Now as he, that Saul, went on his way, he approached Damascus. He was going on a, he was going on a, a work trip, a religious road trip. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What? How is Saul persecuting Jesus? He's, he's, he's ravaging the church. He's, he's taking men and women and committing them to prison. But how is, how is he doing that to Jesus? And Jesus, in his answer, he's really making this point. Jesus doesn't say a huge amount here. But the first thing is this. Why are you persecuting me? Saul's response, who are, who are you, Lord? Who's speaking to me? This, what, what's going on? What does Jesus say again? Just to make sure that Saul does not miss the point and to make sure that you and I do not miss the point. He says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Saul cannot get away from this. His persecution of the church is a persecution of Christ himself. 
And there's so much in this for us, friends, because for us, our attitude towards the church reveals so much about our attitude towards Jesus himself. If you've come in here complacent towards the church, just complacent. And and when I say church, yes, I mean Grace City Church. But I mean something so much more than that. I mean the worldwide fellowship of, of people that call on the name of the Lord, that profess Jesus Christ as Lord. When you have ill thoughts towards the church, you have ill thoughts towards Christ. When you refuse to show generosity to the church, you're refusing to show generosity towards Christ. When you refuse to show kindness towards the church, you're refusing to show kindness towards Christ. When you persecute the church, you are persecuting Jesus. Friends, the church matters a lot. Why is it this way? Why for Jesus is this so personal? Why is this so personal? Why is it not, you're persecuting the church, you're persecuting these people that I love, but I sit a bit separate from that. Cut it out, please. I don't feel it that much myself, but please, would you cut that out? No. Saul, you're persecuting me. You are persecuting me. Why is that? Scripture tells us that it's because Jesus views the church, including Grace City Church, praise God, as his bride. Jesus as a perfect and loving husband, and the church as the bride that he laid down his life for. Perfect husband, willing to put himself in harm's way for his bride. Now, we hear language like this, and we think, oh, so is the, is the Bible saying that all wives, that, that, that if, a, if a woman is married, that she's weak, that she's incapable of protecting something? No, not at all. That's not at all what Scripture is saying. It's saying that a loving husband puts himself in harm's way for his bride. Many of you have met my wife, Natalia. My wife, Natalia, is a strong woman. She is not a weak woman. Trust me, she can fend for herself, (laughs) all right? But as a loving husband, I don't want her to have to. Does that make sense? She can totally fend for herself, but I don't want her to have to because I love her. I love her. I want to put myself in harm's way for her. I want to make sacrificial decisions for her. I know there are many men in the room who are married that would think that way, and many other men in the room who will be married, please think that way because that's modeled after Jesus Christ himself. If somebody, heaven forbid, I don't even like giving this example in this sermon, but if, harm, if somebody was ever to do harm to my wife, Natalia, they would be doing harm to me. Do you get it? Why? Because we are one. We've been joined. We are one in God's sight. We are one. We are one. Two people coming together in marriage. We are one together. And Jesus has that same attitude about his bride. He says, my bride, my people, they are in me. And I am in them. We are one. Saul, you persecute my bride. You're persecuting me. You cannot separate the two. But God, in his immeasurable grace, breaks in on Saul's life, just as he broke in on Chuck Colson's life. And just like some of you know right now that he's breaking in on your life, you know you you can feel your heart softening. Areas where you know in your life where you've just had a hard heart towards different people, or maybe even towards Jesus in the church. You can feel just something. You can't explain it. You're trying to use all your intellectual power and reasoning to try to explain it, but words are failing you a little bit. You know that something is happening. You know what that is? I love how Matt worded it last week. God is breaking in on your life. God is doing something. We don't try to convince our way there. We don't try to, you know, get super emotional to get our way there. Coming to know God is something that God does. It's a work that he does in your life in pursuit of you. He is the pursuing God. And some of you know that's happening in your life right now. And Saul, who is later given this new name of Paul, he goes from being a man who ravages the church 
standing in approval as Stephen is put to death as he's executed and also being involved in dragging men and women off to prison, this Saul, this Paul, is now one of the greatest champions of grace that the world has ever known. Totally transformed by God. This man, this man, Matt sent me a picture of, of, a, of a stained glass window in the church uh, here in town of, of Paul, of St. Paul. And I know, guys, I know, I know I get so fired up when I talk about this stuff, but we must be so careful about looking at these men and women in the Bible and, and seeing them as perfection. The whole point of this series is that there is one hero of Scripture And it is not Paul, it is not Noah, it is not Rahab, it is not all these others that we have taught over these past few weeks. His name is Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. And here's a total curveball in the series. The hero of scripture is Jesus, everybody else is an anti-hero. You know who else is an anti-hero? You and me. We are not the heroes, but friends, we try to live our lives as the heroes. We try to live our lives as the heroes. We try to live our lives essentially as many gods. And there is one hero, and his name is Jesus Christ. And we, you know what, if, we, if we're honest with ourselves, we know at best we're anti-heroes, don't we? Like at best, we know we're flawed. Even in our best, most heroic days, my best, most heroic days as a husband or as a father or as a church leader, even in my best days, they're flawed. I can't even say execution properly. Like, seriously. Like, there's, there's just something wrong, right? On my best days, I'm still making mistakes left and right. Not just trivial little ones like that, but big ones. Every single one of us, at best, is an anti-hero. Jesus Christ and Jesus alone is the true hero. And this means that no matter what you've done in your life, you know, even this past weekend, I don't, I don't know what Saturday night looks like for you, or last weekend, or last year, or 10 years ago, what you've done, what you've had done to you, what sin you've walked. Maybe some of you know, like when I'm talking about persecution of the church, or or persecution or ridicule of Christians, maybe some of you know, you know what, I've done that, or I'm doing that. Look, you know what, no matter what it is for you, there's grace for you. There is grace for you. There's an old hymn, To God Be the Glory. It's got this line in it that I just love. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Hymns are funny. I was, I, as a kid, I hated hymns. I've come to love hymns. I love lines like this. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Whether you consider yourself to be a vile offender or not, in the sight of God, every sinner is a vile offender. We are all the vilest offenders. Maybe in comparison to the person to your left and right, maybe you're all right. But in comparison to a holy God, you're not, and I am not. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. And Paul, note, he, he knew that. His letters to Timothy, they were among the, the last letters that he wrote in his life. And I'm going to read these verses again. 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. I'm going to read the exact same verses that Melvin started us with. But I want you to hear this again through everything that I've just told you, through Paul's story, things that he did to the church, things that he was responsible for. Later in his life, he says this to his, he calls him his son in the faith, Timothy. He says this, I thank him who has given me strength, 
Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Any blasphemers here in the room this morning? Any persecutors? Any, any opponents of God? No. But I received mercy. Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Friends, in some way, Paul's story or Chuck Colson's story, it's all our story. In some way, it's all our story. We've all sinned against God. We've all fallen short, every single one of us. But grace is available to us. Many of us know John 3.16. But John 3.17 and 18 say this. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See the difference between condemnation, being condemned by God, and being justified, being declared righteous, being declared in God's sight free of the penalty of sin. The difference, friends, is faith. The difference is belief and unbelief. It's not trying to live a super moral, upstanding, perfect Canadian, perfect Christian life. It's not about that. It's about faith and trusting in God and surrendering your life to him and letting his righteousness and his record of perfection cover you fully. Does that mean that you go on living the rest of your life never sinning again? No. My goodness, no. It doesn't mean that at all. But it means that you're covered when you do. It means that you're covered when you do. By the blood of Jesus. By him giving his life. It should have been you up there. But it wasn't. It was Jesus up there in your place. So do we use that as an excuse? Oh, well, I'm, whew, I'm covered. I guess I can, oh, there's this thing that I want to do. It's getting time to do my taxes soon. I'm gonna, I can cut a few corners. Or there's this thing that I want to do. This thing that I, I, I really want, but I know it's not right. This thing that I'm pursuing. This guy or this girl at work that I'm chatting to a lot, even though I'm married or I'm in a different relationship. Or I, uh, but you know what? God will forgive me. It'll be okay. God will, no, no. Do we go on sinning so that grace might increase? Surely not. Surely not. We don't abuse it that way. We don't use it as an excuse. But we know that even as we go on, even as we go on making mistakes, even as we go on realizing, God, I so need your grace, that God looks at us through his son and he says, I declare you righteous. You are innocent. The penalty will not go to you. It was put on my son, Jesus Christ, on the cross.